Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Tuesday morning, the 16th of July. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. The dysfunctional system of delivering health services is to be tackled with government expected to adopt a recommendation from the cross-party Slauncher Care report. The Minister for Health, Simon Harris, is to bring a memo to Cabinet tomorrow which will propose replacing the national structure of the HSE with six regional health areas. The HSE was established in 2004 to replace the 11 health boards at the time. Today's plan to replace the HSE will effectively see six health boards put in place and has raised questions about how the solution to solving the problem in the health service 15 years ago, the HSE, is now considered to be the problem and the solution is to return to the dysfunctional system that led to its creation, going back to the future, as the Irish Examiner reports it today. Stephen Donnelly, Fianna Fáil's spokesperson on Health joins us now and a very good morning to you and uh, thank you for taking the time to be with us uh, this morning. Is this a, a return uh, to the old system of health boards? Michael, good morning and thanks very much for having me on. Look, we don't know yet because this thing has been done in secret. So as you and your listeners will know, one of the things, that, one of the positive things that has come out of this doll where TDs and senators were sort of forced to work more closely together and cooperate uh, than usual because of the minority government. One of the, the good things that came out was this thing called the Slauncher Care Report. And really what the Slauncher Care Report, it's, it's a long detailed report, but when you boil it all down, what it says is we should have one uh, healthcare system that for a sick child, they're getting better and they're getting good care. It shouldn't matter how much money their, their parents earn. Um, we should take private practice out of public hospitals and we should have a fantastic public system where, you know, you don't need private health insurance like in Canada or like in, in, in the UK and, and so forth. So that's what Slauncher Care is meant to be. It's meant to be a, a, a strategy of the, of the Oireachtas. So what's happened? The government has taken it in. Uh, they've said, well, we're doing this reorganization where we're lining up community care and the hospital groups. Mm. 
They haven't consulted with the Oireachtas. But much more importantly, Michael, they haven't actually consulted with the doctors and the nurses and the people running the hospitals. So you'll have a lot of managers and a lot of good doctors and nurses in Our Lady of Lourdes, in Our Lady's Navin, and in all the other places that your listeners will go to. They haven't been consulted. So, so your listeners, actually, you're in an interesting spot because the people listening to your show belong to two different hospital groups. There's the Royal College of Surgeons Hospital Group, um, and, then, and that's linked into Beaumont Hospital. And then there's the Ireland East Hospital Group, and that's linked into St. Vincent's and the Matter. And a lot of people running those hospital groups and running those hospitals have a lot of information about what works well together. And they haven't been consulted. And so what I was doing before politics was, was healthcare reorganization uh, abroad. Mm. And if there's one thing I learned, it's that it doesn't matter so much what your answer is. You know, there's lots of different ways of, of running good healthcare systems. What really matters is you've got the, the doctors, the nurses, the healthcare professionals, the managers, you've got them with you and you're doing it together. So, and you're, you're using all of your knowledge together, and that isn't happening. So my big concern, Michael, mm. is less around the, the, the specifics of the detail of, well, we're going to link up this home care group with this hospital, and we're going to do the following things. It's more around saying most organizations of this kind fail. They make things worse. The way you make them better is to make sure you have everyone with you. And, and they have gone out of their way to avoid having people with them. And that's that's what really worries me. Well, the argument of streamlining the system was the one that was made in 2004. Was it wrong? Was it wrong to establish the HSE? Because let's not forget that the HSE was established by your party leader, Michal Martin. Yeah, so the HSC made a lot of sense at the time, but the work was never finished. So if you remember back to 2003, there were 53 separate health organizations. And actually, you, you referenced me, Hall Martin. I've spoken at length with me, Hall Martin, about what it was like. And he said it was crazy. He said you had groups of managers and consultants mm. getting in the car and coming up to Leinster House to say, well, we have an extra three consultant posts. Where should we put them? And politicians looking at them and saying, oh, for the love of God, folks, you know, you're the professionals. You need to go and you need to do this. Now, people say the HSE is too unwieldy. But sure, you know, we're, we're the size of Manchester by population. And nobody would suggest, well, sure, you couldn't have a single uh, healthcare organization for the city of Manchester. I mean, uh, of course you could. Mm. I think the problem with the HSE, or rather the opportunity that was never seized, was when they were bringing these 53 bodies together, which was probably the right thing to do, yeah. um, was not saying, and by the way, we are also going to cut out layers of bureaucracy. Because as everybody mm. knows, well-functioning organisations, well, be they, be well, they radio stations... It did or, happen to, to some degree in that uh, people's uh, jobs uh, became... Uh, vacant as such. People were left with nothing to do. Uh, effectively, they were redundant, but were kept on because uh, that was the way the thing was established. There was no thought given to what these people would do if you were to streamline the whole system. Yeah, clearly there needed to be things done there. And of course, what happens is when you have people with nothing to do, any of us, we end up mm. causing trouble because we get bored or we start creating 
uh, paperwork that isn't needed. So, for And there example, were thousands of people in the health yeah. service at the time uh, who had no job as such because uh, their job was centralised uh, and uh, they were left sitting bored in empty offices doing little or nothing uh, and uh, that was because of a, a lack of foresight uh, and uh, planning on the behalf of Micheál Martin and the Fianna Fáil government which was then implemented by Mary Harney. I think there was definitely a case to be made for, for being... For, for moving quicker in terms of downsizing. What there, is a, what there is a case for Michael is saying, look, this is a healthcare system, so if anything goes wrong, people die. So what we're going to do is we're going to, we're going to consolidate the 53 organisations into one. That's going to be step one. And when we have everything running and we know that all the information is flowing as it should be, then actually we're going to look at scaling back significantly and investing the money less in bureaucracy and more in frontline clinicians. And that, that bit should have happened. Unfortunately, in 2011, or rather 2012, it got much worse because the HSE comes under a lot of um, comes in for a lot of criticism. Some of it deserved, some mm. of it some of it not deserved. But in fact, what's interesting, Michael, is if you look at the things that matter to the to, to people, it's not so much how the healthcare system is organised. What matters to people is when I'm sick, or when my mum or dad or my my son or daughter gets sick, mm. can they get to see a doctor and can they get into a hospital bed? Okay, and that comes back to the Slauncher Care report, uh, which you say is uh, the template for achieving that uh, with uh, a one tier system rather than a two tier system, so that there's equal access to services and so forth. But it is that government policy. The government is. Uh, to adopt this recommendation but is it now government policy uh, to implement Slauncher Care in its entirety or does that need consultation with the electorate because there is a question of funding this. The government's uh, health policy in 2011 was for everybody to have private health insurance. Uh, the money would follow the patient and all that stuff that James Riley was talking about and a lot of people would think that they were elected on footer of that. Uh, but here uh, today they don't appear to have a- any uh, tangible policy uh, except to introduce something that would require an additional €4 billion euro and there's no way of getting it. Yeah, I think that's. I think what you just asked is actually the most pertinent question in healthcare right now because what happened? After the HSE was established in 2004, the waiting lists actually fell from years to months. So in terms of the things that matter to sick people and their relatives, actually the HSE worked quite well. And I'm not saying it's perfect, it was far from perfect, but actually waiting lists fell from years to months. Then what, what happened was what you just said. James Riley came along and, and said, I'm not going to streamline the organization. He abolished the board and he said he's getting rid of the HSE and bringing in universal health insurance. He did get rid of the board, which was a disaster. And actually, eight years later, they've just re-established the board. Um, the, the universal health insurance didn't happen. Slauncher Care came along. The government said, yes, we're committed to this, but in fact hasn't put in any money. And again, it all comes back to, well, do, do they mean it? Because at the, at the centre of Slauncher Care, for example, is an idea that says we should have a public system, not a public-private system with private care happening in public hospitals. And yet, what did we uncover in the last few weeks? We uncovered that the National Children's Hospital, a public hospital, they're designing in a private set of suites into it. The National Maternity Hospital, which is going to be co-located with the St. Vincent's Hospital, right. that's going to have a private wing. And we're not seeing the money being allocated to Slauncher Care. It's very difficult, Michael, for all the reasons you've just given. It's very difficult to see how the actions of government line up with the stated policy, which is a single-tier system. And indeed, one of the things we're meant to be seeing is more openness, more transparency. We've, we saw it highlighted during cervical check. But let's look at what's happening right now. We're in the middle of another cervical check scandal. They sat on that information till about two hours before the doll went into recess. 
the capital plan, like it's mid-July and they've just said, yeah, we still don't have the capital plan for this year because of overspends on the children's hospital. And then the third thing is the De Butler report. What that is, is a report into how you pull private practice out of public hospitals. Mm. It was given to the minister months ago and he's refusing to release it. So they're certainly not walking the walk, whereas they may be talking the talk. And the 800 women who haven't received their test results uh, in this uh, latest episode of uh, the ongoing uh, scandals relating to cervical checks, should they be concerned? Well, look, I I don't want to, I'm not a doctor, so I'm not going to give any medical view on, on clinical care. But I think we should all be concerned at a system where there seems to be an enormous number of failures. You had a failure in the lab of the computer system. And they said, well, sure, we'll post the results. They didn't post the results. So they failed a second time. Cervical check clearly failed in spotting that the results weren't being set, sent out. Then when we had a lady get in touch and say, I think you have a huge problem here, it took her months. So the control systems clearly weren't in place to say, actually, we, have it. we, we do have a huge problem here. When finally the department found out about it, or, or rather the HSE found out about it, they seemed to have taken several months to tell the Department of Health. And then what we heard was we heard the, the HSE come out and, and I think the government come out and say, oh, well, you know, this is kind of a, this is a minor issue and it's statistically, you know, very, very low risk. Mm. When there were 80,000 women waiting nine months uh, for their own cervical check results, we were told it was all, all very low. So I think we should all be worried at a system where the labs, cervical check, the department and government all seem to have... Uh, made errors which has resulted in the current situation yeah mm-hmm. and uh, if uh, there is uh, that concern can there be confidence in cervical check look ultimately there has to be confidence in cervical check it's it's notwithstanding all of the issues that have been highlighted now and over the last 12 months cervical check remains one of the most successful programs public screening programs of its kind anywhere in the world it was introduced um, by a Fianna Fáil government, as it happens, I think in 2008. And since that year, there's been a 7% per year fall in cervical cancer. Like, that is the number of women walking around today who wouldn't be because of that is huge and growing. So people have to keep engaging in the system, but you wouldn't blame anyone for, for being very, very frustrated at, at what they continue to see and the lack of transparency we've heard Lorraine Walsh and we've heard Stephen Teep who are the two patient advocates on the cervical check consultation group we've heard them come out very frustrated I listened to an interview with Lorraine Walsh yesterday when she stated that she believes that the HSE and the department meet themselves ahead of meeting up with the patient representatives to get their story straight and then feed them the information they want to I mean if that's true it is a shocking indictment of a lack of respect and openness and transparency. And we, we really have to get rid of that. We have to move on from that. OK, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you, though, for joining us uh, this morning. Stephen Donnelly, TD, Fianna Fáil's health spokesperson. Michael Reed on LMFM. The Dublin Rape Crisis Centre launches its annual report today, reporting some 13,400 calls to its 24-hour helpline last year. It's an increase of 4% on the year previous. Nolene Blackwell is Chief Executive Officer of the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre and joins us on the line. A very good morning to you and uh, thanks uh, for joining us as always. Uh, You say that uh, we're in the grip of a sexual violence epidemic. How is that the case? So, uh, 
we've known for a very long time from the evidence that's available that people were very reluctant and slow to disclose sexual assault and rape and they were very slow to report it to the Gardaí. So the last really good piece of information we have is dating back to 2002, where we uh, were able to say from a big survey that one in four men and one in three women have been affected by rape and other sexual assault over their lifetime. So that's a really serious number of people in Ireland, Michael. But Mm. the whole issue of sexual violence was hidden and what's, what is happening now is that the scale of the problem is unfolding. It seems to be right across society, right across the classes, the age groups. Um, across every single part of our society is affected by this sexual assault, by rape, by the impact it has on people themselves, on their families, by the impact it has on family structures. So if it was a physical epidemic. If it was, indeed, if it was something like measles, which is the example I often use, there would be a recognition that what you have to do is deal with it. You have to reduce the incidence and you have to deal with those who are affected. And I think that's really the message we're trying to get out there. From our point of view, working on the front line, running the National 24-Hour Helpline, we can see the scale of the problem. For example, of the 13... 1,400 people who contacted the National Helpline this year. Over half of them were first-time contacts. So people can get onto the helpline from time to time if they need continuing support. But this was over 7,000 people who contacted, nearly 7,500 people who for the first time contacted our helpline seeking help, seeking information, seeking support, seeking just somebody who would understand what they're going through. Mm. So at that level, the state isn't really responding at that level. Uh, and we're, we're seeing, we're seeing, I suppose, small positive improvements from time to time. But we really believe that it is in the interest of all of our society, in the interest of everybody, that this be addressed as a serious nationwide problem which needs serious nationwide answers. And it's an epidemic, you say. Is it a a nationwide epidemic or just a nationwide epidemic or or is it a, a global epidemic? How do other countries compare yeah, so, so it's very hard because no two countries gather their information in the same way. So it's, it's very hard to say. But the World Health Organization has identified it as something which affects one in three people over the course of their lifetime. That's the best we can hope for is that they've looked at the data mm. right across the world and they say this is something that's like one in three. Like that's an awful lot of your listeners today, if you were to divide it out. It's a lot of the people who are out on the street at the moment. And we know and we are seeing more and more that people are saying, yes, I was harmed. I was assaulted. I was raped. Mm. I was hurt by it. I didn't know where to go. I, I wasn't able to get the resources that I needed to deal with it. And that's where we can actually, so at at the one level, we need that increase in resources. And at the other hand, then we're saying, like any public health issue like this, part of it is dealing with those who've been harmed and the other is preventing it happening in the first place. And that's equally important that we minimise the level at which this happens by bringing people, uh, holding people to account who carry out this sort of unlawful and harmful behaviour, that we hold them to account and that we um, 
explain to people what consent is about better, that we invest in giving our children an understanding of healthy relationships that will help them to not only not be harmed, but not do harm into the future. Okay, one in three people are assaulted. by I gather uh, somebody uh, who falls into the other cohort of uh, the two out of three who aren't uh, assaulted during uh, the course of uh, their lifetime. Yes, yeah, so so there's all of those. So there's all of those as well. Uh, the the people, uh, and in fact, there are other people. Uh, uh, DCU was in the news recently talking about the impact on people who aren't harmed when somebody in their family was harmed. Yeah. So for every one person who is themselves assaulted including raped, there are, there are knock-on consequences. There are family members affected. There are family structures disrupted. There are workplaces which are unhealthy places where this is not dealt with, where it is battened down. So in, in a sense, one of the points we will make is that this is not just not just to help the person who was harmed, although that's a core requirement, it's also that it will benefit all of our society. I mean, apart from anything else, where somebody is impacted by this, the whole, their capacity to earn, their capacity to be part of social life, their capacity to form healthy relationships, mm. all of these things are affected and that affects other people as well. So we're all in it. Whether we ourselves have been assaulted or not, and you never know who has mm. and who hasn't, but whether we have or we haven't, we are all affected by this. And, and actually, the thing is that it is a problem that could be reduced. We'll probably never get rid of it, but we could substantially reduce it if we took it seriously. Why, why is this uh, so... Uh, why does it have such a, a deep impact on, on people, uh, do you think, uh, Nolene? Uh, I mean, uh, assault is assault, uh, I suppose, to yeah. some degree, but if uh, somebody punches me in the face, I might have a, a black eye, but that will go away and then that'll be the end of it, really. Yeah, but even even if you take that, Michael, even mm. if you take a physical assault, a serious physical assault, or even a serious, say, road traffic accident mm. or something, mm. um, or or even a serious burglary, people will have shocking, rea- shocked reactions to it and traumatic reactions very often to it for a very long time afterwards. If you were punched in the face, you might be afraid to go out again on a Friday or a Saturday night if that's True. when it happened. Yeah. Mm. But if you look at sexual assault in... And, and what is being assaulted? It is the most intimate assault that you could uh, make on a person. It is not only an assault, uh, it is normally a breach of trust as well. Because what we know and what's consistent is that it is that stranger rape is the minority. That for the most part, people are raped by somebody they know possibly by their boyfriend or partner. Uh, 20% of the people we saw this year were raped by a boyfriend or partner. Uh, It could be by a family member. Uh, Only 5% of child sexual assault is from uh, somebody they don't know. So So you're breaching, so somebody's trust, somebody is opening themselves out intimately to somebody else, emotionally opening themselves out, and that trust is being assaulted, plus the physical assault assault plus the coercion and the manipulation of a person so it is it's very deep and there's actually a a lot of questions still to answer around this how can we measure the level of trauma but what study Mm. is there shows the level of trauma from sexual violence can be 10 20 or 50 times more um 
more impactful on a person than other forms of physical trauma, which I'm not denying either. I absolutely recognize people can be traumatized in a lot of ways, but that intimate trauma does something to a person's dignity, to their self-worth and to their sense of themselves that nothing else can do. And that's why it is so deeply harmful and why help is needed. Mm. And I, I suppose some people will be more affected than others will be. Yeah, that's right. So again, uh, like anything else, um, sexual assault is something that can happen an awful lot of people across all classes, all types. But again, where people have good support, uh, where they have uh, good information, where they have what our therapists here would call resilience, you know, that sense of just being able to cope with difficulties, where they have all of that, it can be easier for them. Each person is different. And one of the things that we try to do on the phone line um, and that we try to do when people come in to see us, and so do all the other rape crisis centres, is identify that there's no proper reaction to being sexually assaulted. There's no one reaction that it can impact a whole lot of people in different ways and take people by surprise in a whole lot of ways as well. But what we also say is there is hope there, is, there are pathways to recovery, to healing, uh, and that people should have access to those pathways. And that, again, is going to require a bigger, more concerted nationwide effort than currently exists. OK, and when people call your helpline, uh, we'll give the number, obviously, in a, a few minutes' time, uh, they'll be speaking with a, a trained counsellor, is it? Yeah, that's right. So our helpline is run by a mixture of uh, salaried staff who during the working week and the rest of the time by trained volunteers who go through a very intensive training and continue that during their period as volunteer counsellors as well. So Mm. typically we would get a lot of people who are interested in the whole area of counselling. They go through this rigorous training um, and everybody is trained and we quality assure as we go along as well. So what we offer on the helpline is a non-judgmental Uh, approach, a totally confidential approach. You don't have to tell anyone you're contacting us and we will only, in the rarest of circumstances where required by law if there was a child at risk, Mm. that's the only case we would have to disclose uh, something. It is a confidential service entirely. People don't even have to give us their name and that often makes it people, uh, makes it easier for people to contact us and to just talk to us and to, I suppose, understand that they're not alone and that's maybe what we can do for them. And we can also say to people, it's never too late to look for help. A lot of the people who contacted us in 2018 who came in to see us are mm. contacting us after a recent rape or assault. But many people will, will, not, will not be able to do that for years for a whole lot of reasons. And it's never too late and there's always help there. And we'll do our best. Now, we still say... We're only touching the tip of the iceberg uh, with, with the nearly 14,000 contacts in 2018. Mm-hmm. Uh, we believe that there's a much greater need for coordinated, well-expanded services to deal with something which has been there before, which has hurt people enormously, but where the service, where they haven't felt able to say it and where the problem has been hidden. And, and now, um, earlier this year, uh, the Minister for Justice and the Taoiseach Um, announced the ratification of the Istanbul Convention, which specifically addresses violence against women and girls, but which puts a plan in place to address all sexual violence and domestic violence that needs to get huge energy behind it, enough resources, because 
at EU level, mm. at Council of Europe level and worldwide, it's recognised that you can actually reduce the issue of sexual violence if you take it seriously. And you can help people to to integrate back better into society if you put the resources into it. Okay, but if people do uh, call you, uh, they will decide themselves. Uh, unless there's a question of uh, child protection, uh, p- the caller will decide themselves what they're going to do, if they're going to do anything, and otherwise uh, you will talk to them and maybe yes. advise them through it. We're totally non-directive. We will give information. We will help people to make their own decisions about what they want them to do. We will signpost them towards other services. Like, for instance, mm. it might be the Rape Crisis Centre and Dundalk would be the proper place to go for somebody. Somebody else might be heading to Tullamore. Do you know that there yeah. might be mm. different services that people need? It mightn't be a Rape Crisis Centre they need at all if they found something else. So we signpost a whole load of different agencies as well as giving people information as well as listening to them and allowing them to talk and and think through for themselves where it is they want to go. Mm. And I suppose to recognise, given the level that we understand sexual violence to be at in our society, they sure aren't alone. Uh, and there's a really good chance that having taken the step of talking to us, that they may be, that may be their first step to healing. Okay, and that helpline number is one eight hundred seventy seven eighty eight eighty eight. Nolene, thank you indeed for joining us. Thank you, Michael. That's one eight hundred seventy seven eighty eight eighty eight. The twenty four hour line for the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre. It's Chief Executive Officer Nolene Blackwell there. Michael Reed on LMFM. Talk about uh, the housing and homelessness crisis uh, that uh, we are living with in this country and how so many people are without homes. But in Drogheda, Louth County Council has 72 homes on its books which are vacant. Uh, this is according to uh, the Mayor of uh, Drogheda, Labour Party Councillor Paul Bell, who's come into the studio with us uh, this morning. Good morning to you, Paul Bell. Thanks uh, for coming. Good morning, Michael. Uh, that's a, a lot of homes. Uh, is that typical? Is that uh, normal to have so many homes empty at any one time? No. Absolutely not. Mm. Uh, there are 72 premises now which cannot be refurbished and made fit to be reissued to people who are on the housing list. Uh, and today in Drogheda, uh, between those who are on the direct housing list and those who are on HAP, there are 1,800 applicants, uh, many low-paid families uh, and those, obviously, who are unemployed. But nevertheless, these are people who are on the housing list. There's not one of us doesn't know anybody, probably mm. at this stage, who's not waiting for a council home or housing assistance payment, which is very, very, I What's suppose... What's wrong with these houses, though? Uh, the, the, when a home becomes vacant, Michael, mm. it has to be brought up to a particular standard. Mm. Uh, electrical work, the insulation work uh, that has to be done, uh, maybe windows... Uh, this is a house that somebody was plumbing, living in. Yeah. And that's the way it's done. I mean, Annie, if we were taking, buying a house mm. tomorrow ourselves, what we would do is we make sure that all the basics in that home were correct. And so when council go to issue a home, that's what they have to do. It's normally a 10-week turnaround, uh, which basically means there's a budget available, and that budget is the, is applied to those homes. What's mm. happening is, because of the lack of funding, the more homes that are coming back, uh, there's no money actually then to, to target for tendering for a contract or a developer to come in and actually do the work. Mm. But were they fit for habitation when people were living in them? Yes, before? they were. They, were, uh, they, would, they would be. But mm. you see, you're still obliged when a home becomes mm. back into into your possession 
to basically assess if there are things that have to be done. A lot of, for instance, homes that could be they could be thirty years old, they could be forty mm. years old, they could be they could be even older. The first thing that has to be normally done in those homes is an assessment of the electrical system. Mm. And that's one thing. Obviously, then sometimes there has to be new heating systems fitted to them. Uh, we all, all the council also has the um, obviously energy efficiency program, which they must mm. then make sure that the home is effectively um, insulated. That's the normal practice. It's nothing wrong with that because it's it's it lasts the home. Yeah, but it's for, expensive. For the but it is expensive, and it mm. has to be has to be mm. made. For it's expensive in a, a property that was perfectly fine when somebody moved yeah. out. Yeah. Uh, well, and how much? Uh, on average, does it cost to bring these houses well, it, back? It, it, it depends. It. it could be it could be five thousand euros. It mm. could be ten. It could mm. be fifteen. It depends on the level of work that has to be performed. Mm. But we have people, for instance, with disabilities, waiting for homes to be issued. It's taken nearly seven months for those homes to be done. Very simply, not enough funding available, mm. and that excludes the other problem that we're experiencing, Michael. And there are many callers into this program talking about the fact that they have a tenancy contract with council. And things that need to be de- dealt with in the home mm. as per a tenancy contract can't actually be addressed, again, due to lack of funding. Mm, the heating system is broken or something yeah. like that. And, and you've had that here yeah. in the studio mm-hmm. time and time mm-hmm. again. Uh, and, and by the way, council rents are not cheap. And they are, you know, they're in, in the line with what goes on in the marketplace. And so this, this is the challenge that council has been facing. The issue for me basically is mm. we've now, we've 72 homes that should be issued to people who are on those lists. Mm. And that needs to be done. Well, we'd probably have uh, a few government ministers uh, in town if uh, they were opening an estate with 72 new houses in it uh, mm. and uh, there'd be lots of fanfare and that sort of, of thing. Uh, but uh, we're being told that we can't build the houses quick enough, that there's a, a building programme in place, but we can't do it quick enough. Uh, just It's not a question of money, it's not a question of budgeting, but when there's empty homes there, could government money not be used to bring them back into the system? Well, uh, at this stage, what council is relying on is its own resources. Some monies are granted uh, for some of the programmes that we talk about, like, mm. for instance, energy efficiency and so forth. Uh, but that, that becomes exhausted fairly early on. But because we have not been able to keep up with the number of homes coming back to us, in the sense, over, say, a two-year period, this is what's built up. Now, that excludes the other conversation, Michael, that we're having concerning um, the homes damaged in the feud. Mm. Uh, which has now been dealt by the insurance organisations, but also by the council trying to pick up the shortfall. Mm. Uh, and that's a, an issue that has to be addressed, can't be ignored. Um, and the, at this stage, there's nine families with no home uh, and and nothing to do with anything, innocent mm. people. And that's been costed, hasn't it? That's been costed at around mm. €650,000 plus VAT. Mm. So that's the, that's the ballpark that we're in. They're the problems that we're facing. Now, as a local councillor, uh, there are certain things that can be done we obviously highlighting what the problems are trying to make sure that people are treated fairly uh, but at this stage um, most of the budgets are basically smashed and mm. they're not available uh, until we then adopt a new budget coming into the new year Okay, but uh, 72 homes to bring them back into the system you'd be mm. talking about how much uh, in total but, but why don't we av- like I don't know the exact figure but why don't mm. we average it say we average it at 10,000 euros mm. say we average it at 15,000 uh, but the problem for me is that people can tell you ringing mm. into this programme these homes are available all over the town yeah, but maybe a million easy mm. uh, 
you wouldn't be far short of it. Yeah, not much. Uh, it sounds like a lot of money, uh, a lot of money for the council to come up with, but yeah. not much money out of uh, no. the government's house building program, is it? No, but you see, the problem is, with, this comes back to the funding of local government. Mm. Uh, the government have been issuing Low County Council approximately thirty-one million euros per annum mm. over the last number of years, seven or eight years, maybe a little bit longer. That figure has dropped from somewhere around 45, 46 million euros. Mm. That's grant funding. So this is a, a continual pressure for funding and what, what's going to be done about it. I'll be very clear about it, Michael. I'm no fan of the government's housing programme. Mm. Uh, I don't believe it responds to local needs. I don't believe that it also deals with the uniqueness maybe of a, an area like Drogheda versus mm. the uniqueness maybe of somewhere in Galway. Uh, and by that I mean is that we're in a particular zone, a rent zone, which is causing tremendous problems. I witnessed recently a, a, a former council home being put up for rent where a family's been asked to pay for a three-bedroom home, €1,400 a month. I mean, if they, they could actually get a cheaper mortgage if, if the government would allow certain mm. institutions to grant them a mortgage. You know, it's up to government to help people along the way. A hand up, not a hand out. And I, I do not see the government responding effectively uh, to these uh, needs. And the solution, you say, is to raise the money locally to increase property taxes. Yes, and I, I understand there's been some degree of um, concern about this, but we haven't had an increase in property tax for five years. Uh, the issue for me, very simply, is I see what's going on in the community. Homeless is not just an issue for those who are on the waiting list. It's also an issue for other families who are supporting these people. Um, and I've uh, basically provoked a debate uh, on what is going to be done in relation to try and get funding locally yeah. to help these families, to help the community um, uh, basically eradicate homelessness or at least have some role in doing so, uh, whether it's basically looking after those homes that are now available, that there's no money for, or indeed honouring the contract for tenancy that we have. Yeah. Um, now, I'm one councillor, Michael, I make this quite clear, uh, the scope of uh, increase in property tax ranges from 5 to 15%. Uh, that's what the legislation says. And this, again, to do with how local government is funding, funded. However, I haven't proposed any such figure. What I'm basically saying is there needs now to be a discussion about property tax. Mm. Um, for instance, uh, some some uh, citizens in the county of a range between 5 and 10% will be asked to pay between €10 Euros and €15 Euros additional per year. Mm. That's what they would be asked to do. That's the number of cents per, per week. But with a, a government intent on convincing people that it is tackling the housing crisis, should the same government not be asked for the million euro or so that's required to bring mm. these houses back into use? I agree. But the, the property tax, Michael, is not just about homes. There's other issues in our town, in our communities, whether it's in Dundalk or Drogheda or RD, mm. that also need to be addressed. Like, for instance... We uh, in Low County Council received 9.8 million euros thereabouts from property tax. That is all spent. That is all spent uh, in, in in the areas that we we, we generate that mm. from. Uh, I know some people may believe this is a, a political opportunity for them, but at the end of the day, this issue has to be debated because we cannot continue to say that we need to address homelessness when we have no money to do so. But then, when we can generate some funds. Mm you know, through a, a very modest application of okay. what we're entitled to do. And you're uh, relatively early, aren't you? The review of property taxes uh, in September, isn't it? Yes, yeah. and, and, okay. and what, mm. what I'm putting out here is for a discussion uh, about this matter. But by the way, some people would, would have to understand what they may be asked to contribute can anything be from €5 Euros to maybe €15 Euros per year. I understand that people may have difficulties with that, 
but there's no other way of generating additional funds. And the day of us saying we're going to get funds from central government, I think is a problematic thing because the government have made it clear mm. that they wish to introduce tax cuts in the next budget. So that's the that's the debate that we're having. Uh, I'm only one council, as I said. Okay. I'm prepared to have that debate with people. All right. Thanks uh, for coming in to us uh, this morning, Labour Party councillor Paul Bell. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns uh, joins us with some of uh, the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael. Welcome back and good morning to everybody listening in. Bernadette tweeted us following your interview with Stephen Donnelly regarding this proposed proposal to restructure the HSE and scrap it really isn't it Michael get rid of it altogether Um, Bernadette saying that a route at branch review is required in any restructuring ensure accountability is an essential part of any change that regional healthcare can only work with services being fit for purpose for all and a stop put to huge waiting times along with a change to top heavy management structures. Mm. Well I think that's why they got rid of uh, the health boards and established the HSE uh, and are now uh, dismantling the HSE and replacing them with uh, six health boards. (laughs) Frank says Mm. that he's sure that at the time when they decided to get rid of the health boards back in the day that it cost money to do that and set up the HSE. Now it's not working Mm. and it seems that they're going to revert back to essentially what was the old system with six regional structures. What needs to change now is how the health service is run, the mindset. There seems to be a lot of management and not enough people on the front line, okay. says Frank. Mm. John from Navin has a couple of points to make, Michael. Mm-hmm. First of all, he says uh, a lot of criticism about the HSE for an overspend, but points out that money has to be paid to the nurses, uh, the increase in money to them, that everybody wanted this to be paid when the nurses were out on strike, so you can't have it both ways. He feels it's a waste of time debating the health service because it's like throwing money into a black hole. He says of thousands of new people coming into the country every year. You have an ageing population, a lot of strain on the health service. There'll never be enough money and says that he feels that it's time for families now to look at how they're going to look after elderly parents. He says, in my day, it was down to us to look after our parents. We did it for my mother. There was no home health then. He says, uh, you know, we're, we're talking about changing. It was changed from the health boards and Uh, We had the HSE. Now they're talking about going back to the old way. We still have thousands of managers, but nobody seems to know what anyone is doing. And he doesn't feel that this proposal will make the slightest bit of difference. Okay, well, I don't know. I suppose we'll get the details of uh, the proposal in the coming days and we might get a better understanding of uh, what is envisaged. Uh, But if you get rid of the managers or the pen pushers, well, who's going to push the pens? That's the (laughs) next question. Mairead says that she's looking forward to hearing the finer details of this proposal that people have been saying for a long time that something needs to be done about the health service, that the HSC was not fit for purpose. 
purpose so maybe a new approach is what mm. is needed. Well a, a lot of people have uh, over a long period of time suggested uh, that we should return to the old health board system. Michael we've so many comments uh, coming in in relation to uh, I suppose this review of the local property tax that uh, Councillor Bell mm. is calling for in relation to uh, trying to alleviate the homeless situation in the town by getting money to do up the vacant houses. A lot of different viewpoints on it. Uh, a listener emailed us in to say, uh, this is Rachel, the council are creating this monster. If they stayed on top of repairs and maintenance, this wouldn't be a problem. I have no arrears. I look after the house, but yet my boiler did not receive its service last year and it's overdue again this year. They will not confirm when it will be serviced. Maybe I should pay for the service myself and hold my rent for the cost. Mm, you soon have somebody knocking on your door. Uh, I think it seems mad as well uh, that uh, something like that uh, is what people are experiencing, that their boiler won't be serviced unless they move out. And then they have to service the boiler if they're to let it out to somebody else or they won't let it out, which is uh, the case with the 72 houses that are vacant. Uh, uh let me see where I'm at. Una says that she feels that this, as she describes it, the sticking plaster approach will not alleviate the housing crisis. We actually have a leadership crisis. Uh, Michael says stop paying landlords and hotels hundreds of millions of euros a year. Do up all the vacant houses. Lisa says could FOSS or a body similar to that not do the houses up. I know of people who ask for a house that has been empty for years and say that they would do it up themselves, Michael, just to- When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Get into the house. Mm. Pat from Balbriggan says I listen to the show. I'm listening in as I do every day. And Paul Bell looking to raise the local property tax. He feels there are people in Drogheda and all over the country who work hard all their lives to get a mortgage. They've saved for a mortgage to buy a house and they're already paying local property tax. He says many have to leave at 9.30 in the morning to drive 
into Dublin to work and don't get home until 9.30 or after that evening. Michael, they are doing everything right, says Pat. And he thinks it's very unfair now to ask people to pay to help maintain social housing when that's already in the budgets for the council. Mm, okay. um, lots and lots more coming on that, Michael. Um, I don't know if we have time for any more, have we? Um, another listener says, Stephen got in touch and Stephen says, I just want to ask Michael, why has the council not got funds to do up the houses? Mm. When you look at the rent, motor tax, parking charges, mm. uh, business rates, to name just a few avenues where they're raising money, why should I pay more local property unjustified tax? Because I feel that the council has not had the foresight to work and save its income to repair the homes, mm. that it's not budgeting properly. Also, if there are 72 vacant houses, Maybe could we not sell 12 and use the income to repair the 60 other houses? That there's lots of ways to try and look at raising the income. Yeah, that's a, an interesting suggestion or to bring down the standards a, a little bit. Uh, I mean, as uh, somebody said there, there's people who would gladly move in and uh, do the repairs or whatever it is themselves. There's a lot of people who move into these houses who wouldn't be too concerned about the bare rating and uh, the idea that uh, they might need to spend more on heating uh, because uh, it's a, a rating uh, that I think a lot of uh, people uh, don't reach in their own homes. Another listener says the problem is Michael that this won't alleviate the homelessness crisis in the area. The local property tax was meant to be used for the upkeep of local areas. I don't know about anyone else but I haven't seen much improvement. I'd love to go, I'd love to know where the local property tax has actually gone. I'd love to see a breakdown of this, says this listener. Plus, many people are already financially stretched as it is. If this attitude of increasing taxes continues, then we'll only see an increase in homelessness, not a reduction because it will put more pressure on people. Okay. So a catch-22 situation. All right. well, some very strong thoughts uh, there, obviously uh, people sharing them with us. Uh, We'll come back to some more of those comments in a a short while actually, if uh, people do want to add to what's been said. As always, we'd love to hear from you. Marie will be back uh, in a few minutes' time with more of uh, the comments. In the meanwhile, if you do want to have your say on the programme today, our telephone number is 1850-715-958. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the cost of sending children to school is expensive, very expensive, I suppose, as most parents know. Up 20 euro for a child at second level this year to 14 euro, according to the Irish League of Credit Unions. The cost of sending a child to primary school has actually decreased by 50 euro to 940 euro, but it's still a lot of money, meaning that one out of every 10 parents of secondary school children say they're finding the costs involved a struggle. A third of parents are expected to go to into debt of an average of €322. Euro. Laura Erskine, a spokesperson for mummypages.ie joins us now. And a very good morning to you, Laura. And uh, I suppose uh, you know better than most uh, the cost of sending children to school it is an expensive business in itself. But it is worrying to see how many people can't afford the costs and are having to go into debt. A number of uh, the people who have to go into debt are going to moneylenders and of course the costs there are extreme and uh, they're finding themselves in debt of uh, €450 in some cases. 
This is true. And um, I mean, this is something that we discuss at the same time every year about the cost of going back to school. Unfortunately, it does seem to be on the rise and, and in particular for secondary school students where the demand for technology to form part of the, the back to school costs. Um, as per the uh, e-readers and iPads and software updates and e-books that are now required mm. for our secondary school students really adds to that cost. Um, we're saying the same things every year, though. Um, thankfully, the government did listen to us regarding the generic school uniform alternatives, and most schools now offer that alternative with an iron-on crest, which has made a big difference. But not all. Exactly, mm. not all. Yeah. It hasn't been um, something that has been, it's been recommended by the Department of Education, it hasn't been insisted upon. Um, so so that still has, has a cost and I think the sports uniforms, because they're something where they're competing competitively against other schools, is something that the schools haven't been able to find a generic alternative to. Mm. Um, however, you can get most uh, uniforms where they're, they're not um, a fancy fabric, such as a kilt, um, in the likes of, of Dunn's, Aldi, Tesco, Marks mm. & Spencer's, um, and then use your, your iron-on crest, which mm. has made a difference, but there there are still significant costs. Well, a big difference, to, I'm sure, for some uh, parents, uh, because you hear uh, some of these shops advertising school uniforms for as little as €5. Euro. Well, this is it, and, and I'm a parent of two primary school children, mm. and I have gone to my local discount uh, you know, supermarket and I have bought, I think I bought James's t-shirts and Dunn's, um, his shirts and uh, we got his trousers in Tesco and I bought Lucy's school shoes. I bought two pairs because mm. they were such good value um, in two different sizes. One a size up for halfway through the year when her feet grow. Well, I was just going to say, how long do they last? Yeah, this is the thing. Well, Children grow and they grow very fast uh, as uh, you know when you have to replace what's in their wardrobe. Absolutely. Uh, and, and lots of the school uniform, uniforms are taking into account that children do grow and they have mm. hidden hems and seams at, at the at the end of trousers mm. uh, to allow for those to be let down halfway through the year. But at the prices that are being offered by the uh, the likes of Lidl and Aldi and Tesco and Dunn's, you know, you, you would actually be happy enough to buy the next size up for halfway through the year and and buy twice as many because they are such good value. Um, uh, James's school trousers cost five euros, so it was a no-brainer to buy to buy a few pairs um, and to allow for the knees to go out of them after playing football in the yard. So, but they they do they do go through stringent tests in terms of durability, washability, um, and I've been buying them there every year for the last five years and never had a problem. And um, there are other costs however, with associated with going back to school. The voluntary contribution is a big part of it. This is the um, voluntary contribution that you have to pay yes, <laughs> in exactly. a lot of cases. Or if you don't volunteer to hand over uh, what they're asking, uh, you may not get a, a locker or something like that. Yes, that can be the case. Um, in, in other cases, uh, you're just harassed for it. Mm. Um, you're get, Your child is coming home with notes. You're getting emails and text messages constantly reminding you and insisting that you contact the school principal if it's something that you can't afford to pay. Mm. Um, so there is some leeway there, you know, for, for those yeah. who can't pay it and an arrangement um, can be can be agreed upon. But if However, you can't afford to pay it or won't pay it, uh, as we've been hearing, uh, some children have been left without lockers or other things like that. But the schools themselves will say that uh, if they don't get these voluntary contributions, uh, they won't have the wherewithal to turn on the lights or the heating. 
That's exactly it. And and, and that's where the government really needs to step up. Um, it's estimated that if they put another £230 million into the Department of Education budget, that they wouldn't need to ask parents for this voluntary contribution at all. Um, and considering um, we are spending below um, our European average um, in terms of GDP um, in investment in our education mm. system, it's something that perhaps the government should consider. The other the other parts of going back to school are, of course, um, the school books, but lots mm. of the, the books the schools are now using the book rental scheme. It's certainly the case in my two children's school. And it is widely reported that in primary schools, that's that's proving successful. However, that's not the case in secondary schools where they need to take, they need to have their own books. They need to be able to study from those books. And the rental scheme um, doesn't work in quite the same way. Um, so secondary school is really where the, the costs rack up. And then, of course, we have... Um, all the addition, additional ancillary costs of, of you know, school bags and um, school coats and um, school stationery. And I tell you, uh, the likes of this uh, UK chain, which has um, landed in Ireland over the last uh, maybe two or three years um, to great um, delight of, of our school children is, is a store called Smiggle. And my goodness, I think it costs about five euro for a pencil in there. Right. So I would warn parents, please mm. don't bow to the pressure um, being put upon you by your, by your children um, to look for these ridiculously expensive scented pencils, scented right. runners, scented school bags mm. um, that cost um, as much as 70 euro for a school bag God. when you can buy something right. for a fraction of the price. Oh, that's shocking. That's, that really is news to me. But uh, I'm sure there's kids listening to us uh, this morning saying, why are they talking about going back to school? Sure, we've only started the holidays. Uh, certainly the case uh, with primary school children. And uh, obviously uh, the cost of going back to school when they do in September will hurt. Uh, but if uh, there's insult to injury, it's probably in a, another story today which looks at class sizes here. And we've uh, the second most crowded classrooms in Europe Europe, uh, with uh, 24.3 pupils being the average. Yes, uh, the, the school classrooms um, are indeed an ongoing problem um, for our country and I, I think that's because we're not putting enough investment into the, the local infrastructure that must go in ahead of housing development. Mm. Um, and, and that's something certainly for the, the planning authorities to, to reconsider. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, I suppose we're, we're without, we're, there aren't enough houses, but similarly, there aren't enough schools. And uh, certainly our mummy pages, mums are telling us that they're having awful problems even just getting their child into the local school mm. uh, because of these very large class sizes. And you, you would worry that if your child has a special need or finds mm. um, a particular subject difficult, that they won't get the, the attention that they need. Yeah. Um, and that's where well, that's the it. And you, you'd wonder, I mean, uh, as uh, somebody uh, who isn't working as a, a teacher, how a teacher can control a classroom of uh, that size. And I suppose that is exactly the problem, because uh, if it is such a challenge, well, then the children aren't getting the attention that they need and deserve. And averages are, are one thing, uh, and they give an overall picture of where we are, 24.3. That means some are below that number and some are above it, of course, uh, to come to that average. So we've children in classes here as we quite often hear, uh, of 30 or more. Yes, uh, and that's certainly the case in my own two children's classrooms. They have a, a class size of 30 and 33 
in their respective classrooms. So they are really big classrooms. The only way that the, the parents or the teachers can manage that is by, by being very strict with the students. Um, and, but unfortunately, it does mean that some children do fall under the radar when it comes to um, any individual needs that they might have. Mm. Uh, and I suppose that's where the, the standardised testing has come in to try and identify those needs. But um, it, I think it's also the reason why some of our, our primary and secondary school teachers have um, have are suffering from mental health issues because they're having to, to, mm. to manage such huge classes. Would you be able to do it? 30? I, uh, I actually, there's 288 would. children who are in classes of 40 and more. My goodness. Yeah. I mean, that, mm. that's where it becomes into, it, it's a vocation teaching. <laughs> and, <laughs> uh, and you can certainly mm. um, say that they, they deserve their summer holidays when they're having to cope with that for, for nine months of the year. Mm, uh, I'm sure uh, it's uh, something uh, that uh, may affect uh, the children, um, not just today, but in years to come as well. And it's a, a terrible story on top of the other one. But we leave it there for the moment, Laura, and thank you indeed uh, for joining Thanks us you. this morning. Laura Erskine, spokesperson for mummypages.ie. Now, we said we'd uh, go back to some more of your calls and comments. And uh, Marie is uh, back with more of the things that you've been saying to us. Yes, Michael, and just on your discussion there about um, back to school mm. costs, an interesting phone call in from Catherine. Catherine is, uh, doesn't have to worry about that now. She says, my children are uh, now in their 20s, finished college and all, Michael. But when they were in primary and secondary school, it may have been the end of the school term when the summer holidays came. But from the very first week, Michael, I used to start buying what they needed to go back to school. And that's what most parents do when they have a couple of children in school because of the various different costs. Uh, apart from mm. the obvious, like the school uniform, if they grow, you'd almost would have been hoping that they wouldn't grow in the year to, you know, too tall, that uh, the, the skirts of the uniform might still fit the girls and the trousers, the boys. But she just feels that it is something that comes around every single year, but yet very little seems to be done to try and take the financial strain of parents despite the talk. Mm. She says some schools are better than others and do allow the generic uniforms but there are still many secondary schools that don't do that and it's secondary school she points out that people really feel the pinch because mm. of the cost of the books. Yeah, well 1400 is uh, the average cost now for secondary school children. It's yeah. a lot of money mm. isn't it? Yeah. When you, if you had a, f- a few children. Mm. Going back then to the discussion discussion around homelessness and local property tax, Hugh um, contacted us via Facebook to say Middle Ireland can't keep subsidising the shortfall in the economy. I'm a homeowner. I paid a mortgage for 20 years. Myself and my wife always worked, uh, reared a family, paid every bill. It would be nice to not have to be constantly robbed by the state in the form of made up taxes, such as the USC and property tax. Okay. Can I have time for one more? Mm-hmm. Geraldine, uh, Geraldine phoned in and Geraldine was commenting on the, and it's Drogheda in particular she's mentioning because she's from the town, the appearance of the town. And she says that she's never seen the town looking so badly in her opinion. She says that there are weeds growing out in the middle of the road in areas that when you go to the clothes banks and the bottle banks, everywhere is overflowing. And she says that she takes a keen interest in the town and that it has so much to offer and finds it sad to see it deteriorating and is wondering why 
it's not being looked after and is the property tax not be go- not going towards this okay. so that's her mm. thoughts yeah. on it well, odd the timing of uh, the comments because uh, I think around this time last year people were calling from Drogheda to compliment the authorities on uh, the job mm. that they did cleaning up the town ahead of uh, the FLA last year Yes, and just as you mentioned, the flower, uh, Brendan phoned in, or no, text us in, and Brendan says that maybe instead of sponsoring the flower and spending money on the flower, that the council should be using that money to do up the houses, that it has to decide where its priority is. Mm, okay. So that's his thoughts. And then Claire texted in to say, I know many people who aren't paying the property tax at all, maybe they should be chased up and leave the people alone who are already paying. Mm, okay. Well, they say that you can't get away with it if you're not paying the property tax, uh, that uh, the charge will be on the house and uh, that it'll stay with the house. Also a text from a listener who says, I'm a widow and, Michael, I could not afford to pay any more on my property tax. Uh, Claire, a different Claire, also got in touch to say, where does all the money go that tenants pay in their rent? Mm. Should that not be put aside for housing maintenance? Mm. Claire wants to know. So lots coming in in relation to that topic, yeah, Mike. Yeah, yeah. No, no. <clears throat> I mean, as I said earlier on, uh, maybe there are questions to ask about the standards such as uh, the bare ratings or the level of maintenance. Uh, I mean, I think sometimes people move out and uh, the council moves in and paints the house, whether it needs to be painted or not. Yes, that's, mm. that, that was mentioned before. And just on mm. the HSE restructuring, we had a call from a listener just to say, was it not um, Fianna Fáil and the Progressive Democrats who created the HSE. Yes, Michal Martin established uh, the HSE and it was introduced then by Mary Harney. So this listener adds another fine mess that Fianna Fáil have got us into. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. Well, I think Stephen Donnelly, in fairness, uh, did concede uh, that there were some mistakes uh, at the time. If uh, I'm not mistaken, I think there were about 5,000 people who were employed by the HSE after it was established in 2005. Uh, but there was no work for those 5,000 people because the work had been centralised. Okay, right, we finish on that. Okay, thanks uh, for that, Marie, and thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us today. Michael Reed on LMFM. The Forza Trade Union is saying uh, that uh, 30 million euro has been invested in our Lady of Lourdes Hospital, but the result has been little more than empty corridors and equipment. Barry Cunningham, Assistant General Secretary of Forza, joins us now. And uh, very good morning to you, Barry, and uh, thanks uh, for taking the time to be with us. Your contention here is that. Good morning to your listeners. The, the money has been invested in the infrastructure, but uh, the staff haven't been put in place to run the services. Absolutely, Michael. Um, this is something that's been ongoing, um, something that I certainly have been raising uh, since I took over my tenure as Assistant General Secretary with responsibility for Our Lady of Lourdes back in 2018. Um, just to give you an example, we had um, a whole time equivalent number of health and social care professionals, um, a deficiency of 17 at that stage. Uh, that situation simply has been exasperated over the year. Um, in April of 2019, it went to 21.5 full-time equivalents. And now, actually, at this stage, in June, in July, it's 23.7. Um, flashpoints in that would be pharmacy. We have a deficiency of over 10 whole-time equivalents. It goes down dietetics, physio, OT, um, SLT, cardiology, respiratory. There is, I suppose, a- another issue that we're dealing with at the moment, Michael, which is in relation to our clerical officers, um, our Lady of Lourdes Hospital has let go um, two agency staff. One of those agency staff worked 
in the emergency department um, and the other one worked in the surgical ward. So there's obviously going to be a knock-on effect there mm. um, for patients, both in admissions and also in releases. Um, look, I mean, wh- what we're saying is that, you know, we're, we're welcoming without question the investment into the hospital and into the region. There's, there's no question about that. But what we're asking for is that uh, the staffing levels be adequate in order to deal with that. And just to give you some examples, I've been doing some research on this. I mean, in the United Kingdom, just under the, the NHS, there was a report issued some time ago called the Francis Report. And, I mean, that was something similar to what's happening in, in Our Lady of Lourdes, where there's an investment in the infrastructure, but not in the personnel. And what that mm. led to was, you know, with, with a question per patient outcomes and also very low staff morale. I mean, we're dealing with a situation where it's extremely difficult to ensure that staff stay in the health sector. And if staff are working at those deficiencies, um, you know, it's, it's, it's simply going to just make the situation an awful lot worse. OK, but you are talking about relatively small numbers, aren't you? I mean, when you talk about whole-time equivalency, you're talking about the equivalent of full-time staff. Uh, in other words, you'd need to, to recruit 24 people uh, to solve this problem. Is that right? But the problem is, Michael, it's not just the 24 people. The problem is that it started off in May of 2018, mm where we're given assurances that at 17 it would be addressed and it would get better. Mm. As I've said to you, we're now in Oh, we understand it's increasing, yes. Mm -hmm. And it's only getting worse, 23.7. And just to give you an example, we had a a high-level meeting with the hospital manager, um, with the general manager for Fiona Brady um, in January of 2019, and we were given assurances around an oncology post that was urgent and that would be filled as soon as possible. Mm. And to date, we still have not got that position filled. We also, at that point, got an assurance from the hospital management that they would set up a working group to look at this issue that would be, I suppose, um, cognizant of the fact that there are a number of different professions that are affected by this and that there would be one person from each of those. That still has yet to happen. Um, so, you know, we're, we're certainly trying, from our perspective, mm. to try and resolve this issue. Um, it's not in my best interest, you know, the day after the Minister for Health arrives at the hospital to open a 30 million um, facility to be turning around and, you know, giving out bad news. But mm. there's an onus of responsibility on me and on Force the Trade Union and on the loud branch of Force to ensure that without question this issue is resolved. Um, because, as I've said to you, I mean, you mm. know, there's a mm. knock-on effect here for patients. Mm. It's going to lead to poor patient outcomes. But from my perspective, it's going to lead and is leading to very poor staff morale. I'm um, about to go to Dundalk now to hold a general meeting with our mm. staff in Loud County Hospital and then I'm going to Our Lady of Lourdes for a meeting at four o'clock um, sure. and I can assure you that what I'm telling you is exactly what you know yeah, our, our it, members are going to be telling us. It, 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 it must be very frustrating uh, because uh, they are obviously very important uh, members of uh, the uh, staff complement in terms of uh, the treatment that patients will receive and how important that treatment is to them and if the people aren't there they won't get the treatment but obviously puts that pressure on you but Absolutely. I suppose the point that I'm making is that it is a relatively small deficit of 24 people Absolutely. and why would you invest 30 million euro if you're not going to staff this is it? what we're asking management yeah. I mean that, that's the I suppose that's the really that's the flashpoint and that's the really difficult piece for me as a trade union official is that I have been trying to address this issue and my predecessor had been trying to address this issue as had the branch um, and we have some you know very professional people on our branch who are representative of all of these grades mm. and as I said on you know in May of last year it was 17 whole time equivalents it's now gone to 23.7 so if we don't take some action now and try and address this it's only going to get worse we were given assurances again, um, as I said at that meeting in January with the general manager of the hospital, Fiona Brady, 
that you know no wards would be open without the required members numbers of staff, and that happened. Mm-hmm. And I will ensure that that doesn't happen again. Nobody, nobody is is wanting to see patients sitting on trolleys. That is absolutely not the question. Um, but what we do want to see is that patients have good outcomes, that staff morale mm-hmm. is in, you know is, is lifted, and that we retain the, the the high quality staff, both clerical and across the health and social care professions within the hospital. Is this inability to recruit people because of pay or because they can't get the people? I'd say it's a combination of things, but from from my perspective, we need to do something on this, and we need to do something on it as quickly as possible. Um, I don't have the staff with me at the moment, but I do believe that there are panels in place. Certainly, I believe there's a panel in place for pharmacy staff, though I don't understand what the recruitment issue is in relation to getting people off those panels. So there are people there waiting there to do There are people there within the system waiting. Now, that's the piece that's really frustrating, um, you know, um, but if you're dealing with and the pharmacy is just one of the areas, as I said, that I've highlighted, where we have a deficiency of, okay, 23.7 whole-time equipment, which may be 25 people, mm. maybe 24 people. Mm. But over 10 of those is in one section, which is pharmacy. Right. So there's obviously going to be a knock-on effect for patients. And mm. that's something that we, you know, I live in this locality, and I'm proud to live in this locality, and I'm very proud of the hospital. And as I said, we welcome the investment within the hospital. But what we will say is that we're no longer prepared to look at look in the other direction while our numbers go down. Mm. Uh, remember, Michael, an awful lot of these people, an awful lot of these professionals are registered. So if there's an issue around their performance, mm. you know, there's a knock-on effect there. Uh, and there's a, a knock-on effect in many ways because in hospitals, uh, none of the staff work in isolation and they can't work Perfect. without each other. Absolutely, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Okay, we'll uh, leave it there for the moment and uh, thanks uh, for that. Barry Cunningham. Well, again, thank you for your time, thank Michael, you. and again, um, we appreciate the, the chance to talk about this. Okay, thank you very much. Barry Cunningham, Assistant General Secretary of Forza there. Now, let's uh, return uh, to the issue of Brexit and uh, the problems uh, that will ensue in the event of a hard Brexit, if uh, that is uh, to be the case. If it is to be the case, uh, are you concerned? This is a question that Marie Kearns has been asking these people in Dundalk. Extremely concerned, yes, I am. It's going to affect us terribly, especially the agricultural sector. Would you worry about a hard border? Oh, I would. I would, would. Because things have been so smoothly uh, this, this, last, this last 20 years, in fact. Yes, so I would worry about the hard border. Anybody in Dundalk would, should be concerned. A lot of people in Dundalk, as you know, travel up to Newry for... So, not that I do much, not for a long time back, but I, I, I would be concerned, of course I would. Well, I sincerely hope they get their heads together and don't let this happen. I think nobody in Ireland would want to see us go back to the old days of the border. So let's hope and pray that this will not happen in Ireland ever again. And that's your fear, that there will be a hard border again? Well, it's we can't be sure of anything at this stage. Yes, it is a fear. It's going to be the same. We got through this, we got through it again. We're just Irish people, we can do that. You know, like everything else, nobody's dying. Look, I think the politicians just going on too long and they're picking it among themselves. I think both the Conservative and the, and the Labour Party they're fighting it among each other instead of getting a saddle. At least they just, our government down here knows they take a good stand on it and hope the, EU, the European Parliament stays with them because they've spent a lot of time, a couple of years, yeah. negotiating. And that wee woman, uh, May, done extremely well. And now these people think they can come along now and try to re- re- negotiate again. It's, it's, it's heartbreaking and it's frustrating. And hauliers and all people in, in all sorts of farm and all, uh, they don't know what to expect. Do you know what I mean? Like, and it, it affects people, jobs and all, and we're all worried about it, you know. 
And would you worry that there could be a hard border at the oh, end of it all? Uh, we're operating in the north of Ireland. We come here at least every three weeks. And but they stayed up, the, stayed up no bit of bother at all, and it's free. Do you know what I mean? Like free travelling and it's, it's nation. There's no hassle at all. But I remember the old days, like, you were standing, waiting for maybe half an hour, 45 minutes, mm. stuff, you know, it's so frustrating to people. No, in fact, people's uh, health and everything, that's how you believe the stress, you know, and I would, I would miss coming up here to tell you the truth. Well, I live in the north, and I know, honestly, maybe you shouldn't be saying this, but I know there's people on the sidelines waiting. If there's a border here, there will be trouble. I am concerned because uh, I'm living here in Dundalk, um, working in Casablanca, so I'd have to drive across the border every day. So I am worried that there is going to be some sort of delay uh, in terms of, you know, coming in and out of the north. Uh, and then as well, just... Um, things have been so settled and quiet and calm and everybody seems to be getting on. So there is that worry that it's going to kind of rise tensions between the north and south as well and create a bit of friction. And that's your worry if there was a hard border? Yeah, yeah. My worry is that uh, the hard border will kind of recreate um, you know, hostility and negativity between the north and south and you know, at the moment, everybody just travels north and south and enjoys maybe the differences that, that each side of the border offers. Mm. Uh, whereas when if, if a hard border comes in, uh, then, you know, maybe we're less likely to yeah. travel. And, and are you hopeful it can be avoided? I am, I'm keeping my fingers crossed that someone somewhere will come out with some sort of an amicable solution. Yeah. It doesn't have to be perfect. Yeah. But that if they could um, keep everybody a little bit happy, I don't know if that's idealistic or not, but just that they wouldn't recreate uh, tension or hostility or cause any kind of negativity between the north and south. A hard border isn't good for England or Ireland. And if we do go back to a hard border, the violence will resume. Simple. Do you think that the government's doing enough to try to avoid it or are their hands tied because of the situation in England? No, not doing enough to avoid what is coming down the line. They've got their heads in the sand, and as Jerry Adams said, we haven't gone away, you know. And unfortunately, that's what's coming. I'm not an advocate of it, but I'm a realist. And the loyalists on the other side of it all are in exactly the same frame of mind. So, yeah, we're going back to a war zone if Brexit doesn't get sorted out. Strong thoughts, serious concerns uh, for that matter and thanks uh, to those people in Dundalk who stopped to take time out of uh, their day to speak with Marie Kearns for us. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Time now, as is usual, around this time on a Tuesday for our weekly visit to the Garda Crime Desk. As usual, there's a, a number of incidents Garda are investigating locally. Perhaps you can assist with those investigations. Garda Sharon White of RD Station joins us uh, for the report this week. And we begin with a burglary in Rathbegan. That's right. Good morning, Michael. Uh, firstly, uh, the burglary happened in Rathbegan, County Meath. It's part of the Dunshockland district. The house was left on the 12th of uh, this month, that's Friday, and the owners returned on the 15th. But the house had been broken into through a rear window, which had been forced. Unfortunately, now the house was ransacked and there was some property taken. 
Rothbegan has easy access onto the N3, so we're wondering maybe if any listeners saw vehicles acting suspiciously in this area between the 12th and the 15th. Unfortunately, that's the time frame we have. Okay, and we've another burglary on the 12th then as well. That's right, yeah. So Mm. they may be connected. It was a second house in, I hope I say this right now, Oherske in Drumree, and was broken into on the 12th, as you said. But it was broken into between 11.30am and 2pm. And it was entered again through a rear window. There was some cash taken from this and we're wondering if you saw anything unusual in this area between 12.30 and 2 last Friday. Dunshock and Gardy are investigating both those burglaries. Okay, and we go to Kel's uh, story, which I imagine people are very much aware of locally and uh, one that I imagine has caused some upset. I, I would imagine so. We're talking about an area of Cherry Hill in Kells and Gardy are investigating an incident of criminal damage there, Michael. It seems that there was a lot of work done by local residents in this area. However, unfortunately, last Tuesday night, night, there was a corrosive substance was poured over a decorative pump, a wooden bench and a decorative wheelbarrow. So we would ask that if any of the residents saw anything or perhaps if there were visitors to the area, that they may be able to help us with this investigation. It's really lovely to see a community taking such an interest in their area and we hope to support them by fully investigating this incident of Mm. vandalism, of course. Yeah, that would break your heart, there's no doubt. Uh, We go to Douth. Uh, It's at this time of the year, I think, uh, once the weather gets a a bit better and people are going to scenic spots that we hear of stories like this. This is uh, sort of typical for the time of year where cars are broken into. That's right. Maybe Mm. there's more people out and about now Mm. at this time of the year. But um, last Tuesday evening, some tourists had parked their car to visit sites in the Douth area and on Unfortunately, that car was broken into and they had items taken. And this happened between 7pm and 10 to 8 on last Tuesday evening. So we'd love to get any information from any listeners that they may have in relation to the crime. Or we would ask that if you have any family visiting from abroad, that you remind them not to leave any valuables in their cars. This should also be kept in mind for anyone leaving their cars in busy spots, you know, t- beaches, parks or anything like that during nice weather, uh, just to remind people of that. OK. Uh, we go to Castle Bellingham next uh, and uh, some money that was stolen. That's right. Last Wednesday morning at about 11 o'clock, a, a delivery driver was making a delivery on the Dundalk Road outside Castle Bellingham. And while inside uh, making the delivery, a small amount of cash was taken from the van. While we have received some information in relation to this crime, we'd appreciate any further assistance people may be able to give the guards in RD are investigating this one. Okay, uh, we go to Duleek next. Uh, theft from a, a building site. Uh, this is uh, quite traumatic, actually, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, it was happened in Duleek at the old corporation cottages, and it, there's a new house under construction in this area. So there were electric gates in, at the front of the site, and they were actually forced open by a mini digger that was on the site, and the mini digger then was stolen. And it happened last Wednesday between uh, 5pm last Wednesday and half six the following morning. So maybe neighbours close by may have seen or heard something or perhaps somebody may have been offered a mini digger for sale recently. Mm. So if they want to contact us, we'd love to hear from them. Okay, another burglary to report on, uh, one in County Louth. That's right. It was happened in the Ross Lock area in Louth Village and the house was broken into between 12.30 and 5pm last Wednesday. Now, Michael, this is quite a rural area, so it'd be mainly locals who may be able to help us with this incident. Maybe, did you see any car or van driving around the area last Wednesday acting suspiciously? 
Unfortunately, the house that was broken into was ransacked and you can only imagine the distress of returning to your home mm. to find it in such a state. So, again, the guards in RD are investigating that. OK, and we conclude with a, a break into the church in Clonard. Yeah, that's right. Um, Gardaí at Longwood are investigating a burglary at St Finian's Church and the church was locked up at 7.30pm on Thursday evening and when it was reopened again at 730 the following morning, it had been broken into. The back window had been broken for the culprits to get in and unfortunately the candle shrine had been broken and there was some equipment taken from the church also. So we'd be looking for any information or help that any locals or anybody with any information can give to us in relation to that incident. Okay, thank you indeed. Uh, Garda Sharon White of RD Garda Station. We'll return uh, to uh, the Garda Crime Desk in around uh, the same time on next Tuesday's programme. Uh, let's uh, just return very briefly uh, to some more of uh, the calls and comments uh, that have been coming to us. Uh, Marie, you have uh, a few more calls there. I have indeed, Michael. Uh, we had a listener in touch in relation to the health service and what's happening there. It says, so the cost for the nursing pay rise is uh, to run way higher than what was mm. expected. Wait until we start demolishing the HSE, paying severance packages, installing a new layer of bureaucracy. There will be less for services. Maybe a change of government accountants would help more. We need to be looking at the financial okay. side of this, says a listener. Uh, Linda says, in relation to the uh, rented properties and uh, not rented properties, sorry, the, ca- the social housing and mm. maintaining them. Uh, Linda says that could we consider maybe paying the job seeker qualified workforce? There are plenty maybe that could do this job and they could do up the empty council houses and that would be two birds with the one mm, stone. You'd be giving so, them some yeah, sort of employment yeah, as well. There'd be a lot of interest in that, uh, right? Uh, the idea of uh, cheap labour seems to be one that's uh, of uh, appeal to some of our, our listeners. Hold that thought for a moment though because uh, you were talking to people in Dundalk about uh, the prospect of a hard Brexit, uh, no deal Brexit and how concerned they were as we heard a few moments ago and uh, they may be all the more concerned when they hear what the next British Prime Minister has to say about this and I'm not saying who'll be the next British Prime Minister but we do know it'll either be Boris Johnson or Jeremy Hunt and we'll hear a little bit from last night's debate now about Brexit. There's a, a very simple reason I think for three years we've had a lot of drift and, and dither and indecision about the fundamental questions of what Brexit means. And I campaign for Brexit. I believe in it. I understand that to do it properly, you must come out of the customs union. You must come out of the single market. Otherwise, there's frankly no sense in it. And I think what, what Brussels will get at long last from me, uh, they will get somebody who has that clarity of vision, which I think will be incredibly welcome to our friends and partners in Brussels as well as in the country. I think we've had a lot of defeatism, a lot of negativity, and I think that uh, the EU will respond now to some real clarity of purpose in the, in the free trade deal that we're going to do. The question is not about the willingness or desire to get out of the EU by the 31st of October. Whichever way we voted in the referendum, we are Democrats in the Conservative Party. We know the greatest thing about our country as one of the oldest and most robust democracies in the world is that people like Boris and I do what the people tell us to do, and that's why we are going to leave. The question is, who has the plan to do it? And uh, if we look at no deal, I don't think there's a a huge difference between me and Boris. We're both willing to leave without a deal, if that is the only way to leave. But counting on no deal, 
when you've got MPs in Parliament who are actively trying to block a no-deal Brexit. They succeeded in March. They're trying now. They will try again this autumn. That is the high-risk way of leaving. The low-risk way is to send to Brussels a Prime Minister who can actually negotiate a deal that can get through Parliament. And I've got the detailed plan to do that. I've worked out how I would get my negotiating team to put together a deal that can get through Parliament. I've thought through how we're going to persuade the, the European Commission to unpick that deal that they've said they won't unpick. I don't say it's going to be easy, but it's not impossible. And if you choose the right person, this can be done. And I don't think we will carry any conviction with our friends and partners over the channel unless they look into our eyes and see that we are absolutely determined to come out of the EU on October the 31st, come what may. And that's what I will deliver. If we have a deal and it needs a few more days to get through Parliament and we haven't got there by the end of October, then I would allow it those extra days. And I see a lady shaking her head here. Um, because I don't, I don't believe that the people of this country would want in that situation for us to rip up a deal that was just a matter of days away. But there's something else. If you take the view that you will absolutely rip up any deal that you may have at the end of September, however close it is to becoming law, if you took that view, you will encourage all those MPs in Parliament who want to stop us leaving without a deal to bring down the government in a vote of confidence. And so I say very frankly... Give us a chance to respond to that. Yeah, no, I will, but I just make my point. If you get this wrong, you will end up in an election before Brexit. And maybe that is what will happen. Jeremy Hunt and Boris Johnson debating last night uh, in front of uh, the Sun newspaper in order to become the next British Prime Minister. And they bring our programme to its conclusion today. Our time has run out on us once again. Remember, before we go, there'll be a podcast of today's programme on our website, lmfm.ie, this afternoon. Thanks to Marie Kearns for producing, Maggie McGuire for researching, and Chris Murray in the control term. I'm Michael. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show with AirGrid, managing and developing the national electricity grid so that it's fit for our current needs and ready for our future ones. Be there. Be there. What are they on about? Oh, okay. The thing about there is there is kind of anywhere. It can be over there. Or there. Or down there. At Free Now, the new name for my taxi, we're on a mission to bring you places. Yeah, like there. Right now, we provide different ways of rolling. Taxiing, e-scooting, and taxi sharing in over 100 cities across Europe. Making it our business to get you there. That's anywhere, everywhere. Just be there. Free Now. Simply update my taxi. For a summer break, make it Belfast. Discover Titanic Belfast, the world's largest Titanic visitor experience. Explore James Conley Visitor Centre and uncover the impact he had on Irish history. Be part of the celebration at Fela on Fobble, Ireland's largest community festival. Enjoy inspired cuisine at award-winning restaurants and embrace the warm Belfast welcome in a cool rooftop bar. Come for the day, stay for the night and make it Belfast this summer at visitbelfast.com. Come summer racing at Ferry House on Wednesday, July 17th. Join us for an evening of top-class flat racing and live music. You're guaranteed an electrifying atmosphere. Admission just €15 with the barbecue bumper bundle just €35 per person. For more information and to pre-book, visit ferryhouse.ie. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.